a week or two hiatus from Mark, but now we're back full force, ready to finish this book, hopefully in the next several months. Remember the book of Mark is, or at least where we are in the book of Mark at this point in time, is back at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus begins to um, narrow his focus down. Jesus begins to narrow his focus down. His ministry, um, for the most part, up until uh, Mark chapter 9, had been to the crowd. Yes, he's had these moments of uh, intimate uh, conversation and teaching with his own disciples, but, it, uh, but the majority of his ministry leading up to Mark chapter 9 has been a crowd-based ministry. But now as we move into Mark chapter 9, or as we moved into Mark chapter 9, we noticed that there was a very dramatic shift in the approach of Jesus to his overall ministry. Though we will see from time to time Jesus speaking to crowds, um, it is inadvertently and not necessarily intentionally. Why? Because Jesus is moving in Mark chapter 9. He's moving into these final days of his life. And Jesus is in laser focus mode. He, there are some aspects of his ministry that he needs to make sure that his disciples hear him and hear him well about. To me, these last, this last half of Mark's gospel, chapter 9 through 16, is a compressed period of time. It, we, we see two and, uh, well, we basically see almost three years of ministry transpire over eight chapters. And now as we move into chapter 9 through chapter 16, we're basically looking at uh, just a few months of Jesus' ministry, maybe the last... 90 to 120 days of his overall ministry. And so as, as I look at it, it's almost like Jesus uh, goes into what you might call uh, ACT prep mode. He, he, he's, he's taught all of this information over a three-year period, and now it's time to take the final test. And so what he wants to do is he, he, he wants to have uh, a study group. He's calling the 12 together and he's like, look, we, we, need to, we need to go back over the material a couple of more times before you take the final test, before you, you literally launch out into this world as my spokesman, as my disciples, as my witnesses. And so what we notice is, is we notice in these remaining chapters some repetitive teachings of Jesus. As I've said before, I am forever grateful that the disciples that Jesus handpicked were not men who could learn on the first try. Hmm? Any, any of you struggle with learning something and getting it right after one lesson? 
Well, if that's the way you are, which I think that's the way most of us are, guess what? We're in really good company. And the text that we've come to today, the title of today's sermon, if we were going to give it a title, is The Goat on Being Great, Part 2. Back in Mark chapter 9, I preached a message called The Goat on Being Great. Remember, GOAT is an acronym for greatest of all time. It was a phrase coined by Muhammad Ali uh, during the height of his uh, boxing career. He, he called himself the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And Jesus is the true GOAT. He's the true greatest of all time. And back in Mark chapter 9, he taught his disciples on what it really meant to be great. Because you see, Jesus is not against greatness. He just wants us to make sure that we pursue greatness in the right way. In the way that honors him as being the greatest. So let's, let's just read these verses together. And then we've got two points uh, this morning uh, from this text. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so the sons of thunder, as they're also called, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that sounds something like a five-year-old would ask, right? Hey, Daddy, I want to ask you something, but before I ask you, I need you to give me the, the guarantee you're going to do it, right? That's, that's exactly what they're doing. And, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able Can I just tell you something? Anytime you're talking to Jesus, three words to never say to Jesus are those three. We are able. Or I am able. Remember, Jesus resists the proud, but he gives grace to the weak. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, I want you to do something in your Bible. Okay? This is important. Right here. This is important. Pretty much every book of the Bible has one key verse that will help you to understand the entire book. 
Proverbs is probably the only book in the Bible that doesn't kind of have that key verse. And, and, and then the Psalms, you kind of have to take them chapter by chapter. But pretty much all your other books, especially your New Testament books, especially the narrative books in the Old Testament, they're all going to have a key verse that's kind of the, 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 the key that unlocks the understanding of the entire book. This is that verse for Mark. It is Mark 10, 45. That is the summation of the entire book in one verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's the story. Jesus is once again calling his disciples, uh, or not calling them, but teaching them concerning greatness. Jesus wants his disciples to be great. The problem is that they still have a lack of understanding of what it means to be great in his kingdom. So I've got, I've got two simple truths this morning, okay? Here, here, here's truth number one. Their request revealed their immaturity, not their ignorance. Their request revealed their immaturity, not their ignorance. And, and why do I say that? Is because Jesus has already taught on this subject, so they're not ignorant of the information. They just have had a hard time applying what it is that they're hearing. That's immaturity, right? These two men, James and John, are not ignorant concerning Jesus' teachings on greatness. As we saw in Mark chapter 9, Jesus addressed their ignorance on this crucial teaching. In Mark 9, Jesus does not repudiate greatness, but he redefines greatness. He taught them that greatness is not identified, is not defined by your accomplishment, but, but, but by who you serve. Can I say that to you one more time? He taught them that greatness is not defined by your accomplishment, but by who you serve. These two men weren't ignorant. They were just immature. Instead of approaching Jesus with childlike faith, they approached Jesus with a childish request. Notice their childish approach. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Sounds like the request of an elementary school child. But let me, let me just add to the drama here. If you were to go over to Matthew's gospel, and in Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you. Matthew tells a little bit of the story that, for some reason, Peter left it out when he was telling John, John Mark about it. John Mark being the author of Mark. Listen to what Matthew says. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to set, at, uh, are to set one at your right hand and one, and one at your left in your kingdom. They not only make a childish request, but they get their mama to come and make the request. It's amazing how we can be walking self-contradictions. 
What do I mean by that? James and John are the sons of Zebedee. James and John are, are, are named by Jesus himself the sons of thunder because they are the very uh, individuals when Jesus went into uh, a particular area to minister and he was soundly rejected by the, uh, by the residents of that area. They said, Lord, let us just call fire down from heaven like Elijah did. These were hot-tempered, uh, short-fused, impatient individuals. And, and you wouldn't think that the sons of thunder would go get mama involved in their affairs, but we can all at times be walking self-contradictions, and they were no exception. These two men put their maturity on full display for all those to see except themselves. You know, it's amazing to me. Did they, could they not hear what they were saying? Could, could, they, could they not hear the words that were coming out of their mouth and, and how childish and immature and absurd they were to Jesus himself? Did, did it not ever strike them that bringing mama to Jesus to get mama to talk to Jesus for you? That something just wasn't right about that? I'm going to tell you what. Just remember this. Sin makes you dumb. That's what sin does. It just makes you dumb. It makes you say dumb stuff, do dumb stuff, act in a dumb way. It's just overall... Sin makes you dumb. Not much in this world is more frustrating than immaturity. And yet Jesus remains faithful. Oh, you, got to, you got to really see what's going on in this text, right? I mean, he has just taught on this very subject one chapter before. And here they are, once again, having to deal with the same issue that he has already dealt with before. And listen, this isn't one of the, the, the lesser known of the 12 disciples. We're talking about this is two-thirds of his inner circle. R remember, this is... James and John, who along with Peter, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration back in chapter 9. These, these are the guys who had this incredible, intimate, uh, unfettered relationship with Jesus. They, they, they saw parts of Jesus that nobody else had ever seen. And yet, and yet, their immaturity remains... but yet Jesus remains faithful. He doesn't, he doesn't chastise them. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't throw his hands up in frustration and say, I've had enough. Enough is enough. How long is it going? You know how like sometimes the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? I mean, sometimes you, you really wonder if, if the Lord doesn't say that about us. How long is it going to take 
How many lessons? How, 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 many, how many moments of, 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 of togetherness is it going to take before you really understand what I'm saying? Listen, I, I don't know. We all walked in here this morning with our own issues. And I don't know, maybe, you're, maybe one of the issues you walked in this morning was if Jesus still does love me, he, he must be awfully frustrated with me right now. He must be so tired of my antics, so wearied by my... lack of maturity. And I just want to say something to you this morning. If he is yours and you are his, he never grows weary in any way. He's not tired. He's not weary of you. He's not frustrated. He, he's not, he, he doesn't do like we do. He doesn't say, you got one more time to get this right. Or, right? I've had it up to here with your actions, your foolishness. Jesus doesn't even have a here with his children. He does not lash out or lecture them concerning their slowness. He simply pursues their heart with the truth because true love knows no other course of action. Mm. True love knows no other course of action. Listen, Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't push them away. Jesus draws them in even closer. And that leads me to my last point this morning. This is a kind of a, a, a complicated sentence structure here, but I'm going I'm I'm to bring some clarity to it. Jesus' response revealed what is intrinsic in Jesus, in the Savior. Intrinsic simply means it's something that you're absolutely born with. You didn't, you didn't, you haven't done anything to get this ability, this ability was just born inside of you. How many of you hate math because you're not good with numbers? Yeah. See, math is not intrinsic in you. How many of you can just, it's just always been there. You've been able to look at something and you can put something together without even having the instructions. Well, see, that's intrinsic. That's something that you were born with. It's an innate gift. I can do big number math in my head, but if I got to put something together, you better give me step-by-step -step instructions on how to do it. Why? Because one is intrinsic, the other is not. So there's some, So see, Jesus' response, and what he's, what he's about to tell them and what we're about to look at, is Jesus is saying, look, Here's what's intrinsic in me. This is, this is who I am. This is what I've always been. 
and what needs to be incarnated, which means incarnated in the flesh. This is what these flesh and blood disciples, these saints, need to have. Because, see, what's intrinsic in Jesus is not intrinsic in us. What we need is we need Jesus to incarnate this, to bring this to, to life within us as his people. So let's, let's flesh that out real quick. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and, they, and their great ones exercise authority over them. The question of greatness was common amongst Jews in that day. The disciples had absorbed the culture around them. Because see what Jesus says? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You see, they, they were plugging the teaching of Jesus into it and did not realize the contradictions. I, I don't have time to go into that, to this this morning, but we have a lot of this in what is called so-called Christian leadership of today is where we try to, to, to merge uh, the word, uh, 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 where we try to merge Christian teachings with, with secular teachings uh, on leadership. Can I, can I say something to you real quick about a phrase that's bantered around a lot in, in Christian uh, circles? And it's even been brought over into the secular world. And it's not a real, it's not a real, it's not even real. We say it's real, but it's not. And that is, have you ever heard the phrase servant leadership? The only kind of leadership there is is servant. You, you don't have to say servant leadership. Jesus says if you want to be great, be what? Servant. No such thing as servant leadership, only to be a servant. Listen, if you are a servant, then you will lead. Why? Because being a servant in God's kingdom elevates you to a place of greatness. Now, that's not, that doesn't mean you sit on the throne or you sit on the right or the left-hand side. That's, that's not what we're talking. We're not talking about a, a, a ascending to some kind of man-given position. What we're talking about is the recognition of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who looks down at the lowliest and, and probably the, the unknown who are serving others in his name. And he says, you know what? One day, everybody's going to know you're great. They may not know who you are right now, but trust me, there's going to come a day where I'm separating sheep from goat, and then from even within the sheep, I'm going to take the sheep, and I'm going to reward sheep according to their works here on earth, and for all of eternity, you will live your life being recognized as somebody who might have been a nobody on earth, but you'll live as a somebody in heaven. Why? Because Jesus says those who are the least will one day be the greatest. Those who are the last will one day be the first. I, I'm going to tell you something. We're going to get to heaven and you're going to be surprised. We're going to be surprised at those at whom God honors with greatness. And those whom 
are not honored in the way that we think they would have been honored. Why? Because Jesus says, you've got your honorarium already down here on earth. Let's read verses 43 through 44. But it shall not be among you. Why? Because Jesus is saying this. Here's the, so Jesus is saying what's, what's intrinsic in me needs to be incarnated in you. And that's why he says, but it shall not be so among you. What, who's he talking to? He's talking to his people. He's telling his people, look, because you're my people, what's intrinsic in me, I am going to make it real incarnated in the flesh in you because you're my people. Matter of fact, Jesus is going to say, this is how people are going to know whether you're, whether you're mine or not. Whoever would be great among you must be servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Being a servant after the pattern of Jesus is a divine ablement, not a human inclination. What do I mean by that? It is not intrinsically. Listen, you're not born with the intrinsic nature of serving others. You have to be born again and given a new nature by Jesus himself, his nature, in order for you to really be a servant. Now, we can, teach, we can teach people how to serve and how to, how to do for others and, and, and all of that. That, that. Look, we can teach that, and we can help people to see that they need to, to do that. But that doesn't necessarily mean those people are Christians. Why? Because all of us are born in the image of God, and therefore all of us, will have a sense within us because we are in God's image. We can be taught to serve other people. But listen, it is not who we are at our core. Who we are at our core is to be served, not to be people who serve. Can I, can I remind you of something I said a, couple, a month or so ago to you? If you really want to know what kind of servant you are, just wait till you get treated like a servant. Yeah, you catch what I'm saying there? You, you may think, well, I'm a servant. I'm a great servant. I, oh, I love to serve people. I know a lot of people that love to serve people until the people they serve treat them like a servant. And then it's like, Katie bar the door. I can't believe they talked to me that way. I can't believe they treated me that way. I, I, just can't be, I just can't believe they did that after all that I have done for them, right? The only way you can really test servanthood is to get treated like a servant. And Jesus shows us that true servanthood only comes from the divine nature of Jesus living inside of us. Why? Because it is not our inclination. It is not intrinsic in us to serve. And let's just look at that last verse one more time, verse 45, and then we're closing it. The Son of Man came not to 
not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To follow Jesus doesn't mean we serve Jesus. Do you know there's nowhere in the Bible that it tells us to serve Jesus? To follow Jesus means we serve those who Jesus would serve. There's no command to serve Jesus. Only a command to serve those whom Jesus would serve. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means you're going to serve those whom Jesus would serve. Greatness is not defined by your accomplishment, but who you serve. So let me ask you some questions this morning in closing. If greatness is not defined by your accomplishment, but by who you serve, then here are my questions. Ready? Question number one. Are you a servant of all or some? Are you a servant of all or some? Do you keep a low profile or do you expect praise? Do you keep a low profile or do you expect praise? Do you serve with joy or obligation? Do you serve with joy? What, what do you mean by that, Brother Jason? I mean this. Do you serve because you get to, or do you serve because you have to? Do, do you serve because you've got the opportunity, or do you serve because you're like, well, I probably ought to go down there and be a part of that, because if I don't show up, then, then they'll probably think, well, why, why aren't they there? You know, I mean, uh, why, why aren't they serving? So you, you go more out of pressure from what others think than the joy of the opportunity of getting to serve others. Now, Katie Harrell asked a really good question two weeks ago at, at our camp. And it was about, how do you know what your spiritual gift is? And so we talked about that. I won't go into all the detail about that. But one of the answers that we gave her, or one of the starting points that we gave her is, well, you just gotta, you gotta get involved. You, you just gotta, you, you gotta start serving, right? I mean, I don't know what your spiritual gift is. I mean, you can talk to people in the church, and people in the church can kind of help you do that. They've got these things called spiritual gift tests and or inventories, and they can be somewhat helpful. Uh, you know, there's this thing called uh, Shape S H P E, which goes through, uh, you know, uh, I don't remember what the S stands for, but the H is for your heart. So what's your heart passionate about? A is for abilities. What kind of natural abilities do you have? P is for personality. What's your personality type? You know, what are you, what are you kind of drawn to? Introvert, extrovert. And e is for experiences. Uh, you know, what's been your personal experiences in your life that may shape, you know, what kind of uh, spiritual gift you might have or what ministry you might be involved in. And all of that stuff is really helpful. But, but listen to me, listen to me. 
can, I tell you, can I tell you how you get started? You ask this question right here. You want to find out what the Lord wants you to do. Where the Lord wants you to serve, then you just ask that one question. Who would Jesus be serving if he was here? Look, see, that's applicable no matter where you are. So, like, if Katie's at school, because, you know, your spiritual gifts, they just don't work at church. They work anywhere you go, right? They're like plug and play no matter where you are. It's crazy how people think spiritual gift stuff only applies here at church, but it's plug and play no matter where you are. So it's, I'm at school. Who would Jesus be serving if he was here? Well, I start looking around. Who would Jesus serve if he was here? Probably that kid that's sitting over there in the lunchroom all by themselves, who I know that everybody makes fun of and picks on and bullies because they're... I don't know, they're weird or whatever. That's, I mean, that like kind of stands out like a sore thumb, right? When you're at work and on the job, who, who would Jesus be serving on your job if he was working your job? And listen, no matter where we are and no matter what we're doing, if we would simply ask ourselves this, this question, who would Jesus be serving if he was here? If we ask that question, then the answer to that question gives you your mission. And I just can't help but believe this morning. Come on, David. I just can't help but believe this morning that if there were Christians that were walking around taking Jesus' words at heart that, hey, I want you to be great. I really want you to pursue greatness in your life. Jesus says, I want you to be like me. If we really took that to heart, and if we really wanted to be great the way Jesus wants us to be great, then we only have to ask ourselves one question, no matter where we are and no matter who we're around, who would Jesus be serving if he was here? And whatever the answer is to that question is how I can be great in that moment for Christ. Because let me, let, me, let, me, let me leave you with this thought. When you answer that question in whatever setting that you're in, here's what's going to happen. Eventually, it is going to lead to somebody wondering why you are doing what you're doing. And the answer to their question becomes really easy. Why are you doing that? Why are you serving that person? Why, why are you over there doing that with, with them? And you know how you answer? I'm just simply doing what Jesus would do if he was here. It's not a brag on you. It's not a pat on you. It's not because, well, I've got a big heart and I just really love people. No, it's the, it's the confession that if Jesus didn't live in my heart, I wouldn't have enough of a heart to even do this. The only reason why I'm over here doing this is because Jesus lives in me. And if he was here, 
and really he is here because he's here in me, that's exactly where he would be. Heavenly Father, help us to serve those that you would serve. That is the message that you are trying to get across to your disciples in these final days. It, it, was, it was the testimony of your life for three years. It is to serve those who no one else would serve. You were accused of serving gluttons and drunkards and all kinds of sinners. But those are the people you came to serve. Why? Because you came to give the ultimate price, your life. You came to give your life as a ransom for many. And now you call us the ransomed to go and do likewise. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together this morning. I want to read these three verses of Scripture, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed for the day. I want you to listen to the words of Paul written to Titus about the effects of our salvation. Okay? This is what should happen. It should be the outworking of a person who has been saved. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now here it is. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous. What do you think those good works are? Hopefully you're going to say being a servant. That's the good work. That's the great work. That's the outworking of salvation in our lives. John said in John 3.30 when he, about Jesus, he said, He must increase and I must decrease. You want to be servant? You want to be great? You want to bring glory to God's name? You want to be an instrument in the, in the hands of the Redeemer? Then you look around your world and you ask yourself the question, if Jesus was here, who would he serve? And you go and serve those people and you'll be right smack dab in the, in the middle of being obedient to the will of God for your life. And guess what? To Katie's question, guess what you'll find in serving? You'll find exactly what God's gifted you to do. Don't wait around and try to figure it out before you go serve. Go serve, and he'll show you. You'll hear a voice on the right and on the left and behind you that'll say, here is the way, walk in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we leave here today,
I think your voice is pretty clear. I think it's pretty easy to understand. We've got to ask the question, if we're really your people, saved, redeemed by you, then we'll look around and we'll say, if Jesus was here, who would he serve? And then we would go serve those people. Nothing would bring you more glory or honor, and nothing would be greater for our life than for us to do that. And in our obedience to that, we would find every, every treasure that we are looking for in this life in that obedience. Help us to do that for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.